Thanks for clicking play on the East Lake Tri-Cities Talks podcast. If you're new to this, we're trying to be the best church option for people in the Tri-Cities who aren't typically into church. We hope today's talk inspires you to take next steps in doing life in the way Jesus modeled and taught. If you're ever interested in being a part of one of our in-person gatherings, they take place every Sunday at the Uptown Theater in Richland. Check the website for current times. And regardless of what you look like, who you voted for, or where your tattoos are, we'd love to have you. But for now, here's our most recent talk. Well, good morning. Welcome to Eastlake, and welcome to Eastlake Online. For those of you catching this on the live stream or on replay, we're glad that you are here. I want to preface uh, my talk today. If we've never met, my name is Brendan, the teaching pastor. And I want to preface it if uh, if you saw me in the lobby or see me afterwards or even up here and sound like a little congested, and uh, my eyes are are just, it's like that. I, I have uh, allergies for like two weeks a year, and this is like week one of those things. And I just, as soon as I go outside, I look like I just got done reading where the red fern grows. And that's just life right now. So uh, that's it's not you don't have to adjust your adjust your TV or anything like that. That's that's what's happening. But we we started a series last week um, called Asking Better Questions. It's a series on the Bible, and uh, we we kicked it off by basically saying uh, this: that some of the smartest people that you know ask the best questions. Just an observable reality. You don't have to be a Christian to get that piece. But some of your, like the smartest people that you know, you you work with them, you live with them, you you get out of a, a, like a group lunch, you go to a group lunch and they ask fantastic questions. And you're like, man, I want to be smart like that someday. Or you, it's a, a work meeting and you get done and they're like, they just have the best, uh, the, the, they're just smart. They just, they have the best ideas and they have the best things. And, and you, you only know this because sometimes it contrasts with your and my ability to ask really dumb questions. And, and you, sometimes then you realize how difficult it is to ask good questions because we've all been in those stupid situations where we ask something. Uh, one recently, I'd be like, I'd be like, uh, so, so how did that make you feel when, when he said that thing? And she's like, when he told me he didn't love me anymore and doesn't want to live with me? Yeah, it hurts a lot. Are you listening to me? Is this... Are we focused here? Like, this is terrible. Like, what, what am I supposed to feel? I'd be like, oh, yeah. Note to self, dumb question to be able to ask. So so get better. Like, just in general, like, it's a good thing to get better. Um, recently, too, my, I, I came home, and my wife said, hey, Grayson, he's our 10-year-old uh, son. He he had a rough day at school. You want to, like, talk to him about it, talk him through it. And so I I nonchalantly walk into the kitchen and be like, hey, buddy, how's it going? How was your day? It was fine. Uh, did you do anything fun today? I went to school with that. It's a, you know, Wednesday. I'm like, oh, cool, cool, cool. How was lunch? You know, trying to, uh, how was recess? Did you play soccer? Yeah. And I'm like, babe, I am trying my hardest here. I don't even know. Everything sounds like a normal day. Like, what do you want me to do? Right. And uh, she just gave me the look like, you've got to get better asking questions. And so that's part of the series. I think it's a good life principle in general. It's also good when it comes to, uh, I think, approaching scripture and asking better questions about the Bible. Instead of being a church that like tells you any questions about the Bible is like a disloyalty and, and don't do it, you should, and you should, maybe you've shown up in a church environment before, nobody asks questions until you thought, maybe I'm the dumb one here. Maybe, maybe I just, everybody else gets it and I just don't get it. And, or the moment you ask questions, it was like, hey, are you sure that you, you know, you belong here or whatever? And, and I, I think it's, I think it's a good thing. I think, I think when we get good at asking, when we get, smarter about all of this and smarter about life, we'll ask really good questions even uh, about the Bible as well. 
Um, better questions come from inquisitiveness, curiosity, being invested into something. I, I think that the, when you have, are motivated to ask the question or ask better questions, it's because you live with this curiosity, you live with this inquisitiveness, and that means that you're just invested into this. So that, that's a good thing, right? Um, if you've never, if you've read the Bible, then you have questions about it. And if you don't have any questions about it, the odds are you haven't read it. Because it reads differently than most books that you've, that you've read. And no matter how familiar uh, you are, what familiarity you have with, with the church and uh, this, that this, this should be a, a, pause, a pausing point a lot of times in life for questions about this. Because the church, since its inception, has been, in, uh, has been established as an interpretive community about this. I believe, and, and we talked about this in week one, that this is a collection of the thoughts and stories of people who have wrestled with God for thousands of years. Uh, that he made himself known to the, this people, the, the people of, of Israel and, and Abraham, and, and made their way out of that and into a promised land, and then uh, and then a church uh, who who was trying to make sense of Jesus, who wrestled with the idea of of Jesus. The, the the literal name Israel we said last week is one who wrestles with God, one who refuses to let go. Um, Jacob's gets his name turned into that, and it's this is a collection of the thoughts and, and stories of of people who have wrestled with God. So and and we get to continue that part of the process. We're not adding to this scripture anymore, but we are, we try and function as a community that for one hour a week gather together to make sense of what this says about life and about the way of Jesus and the way that Jesus taught and what it might look like to live that out in 2023 in the Tri-Cities community. So anyways, that's the invitation to it. Uh, and we try and then, then function that and have it speak to us. I also said last week, not only do we, we read the Bible, but when we do it correctly, I, I think it also, we allow space for it to read us. Um, that we discover more about ourselves and about human nature as we read about people who in their human nature wrestled with this in this way. Uh, and, And then we see ourselves in this and that it is a dynamic interpretation that we don't, it's not flat interpretation every time, but as we evolve and as we be become different in whatever season of life we're in, the things that we get out of this change and adapt to that. Like, for instance, you know, if you are, are coming, you came into reading something on the, you know, the back end of a 20 year marriage, you read something differently than you do as somebody dealing with the brokenness of a raw divorce, right? I mean, like, like, like you're just not the same person as, as when you read that or somebody who's raising kids and trying to figure out what it means to relate to teenagers or manage crying babies. You read that differently than somebody who is uh, entering into the latter years of their life, trying to make sense of legacy and what have I left behind and uh, how do I live well with in retirement and purpose and all that kind of stuff. It reads differently. Uh, it reads differently in our brains. It also reads us differently. And there's an, a participatory process, I think, that is critical for it, which is why I said you should absolutely read your Bible. Uh, whether you uh, own one or not, we said that it's so accessible on the phone with the version app, and, and we'll, I'll give you one. We've got free books uh, out on the free book table. It's like the Gospel of John in a very readable language. Start there. And my, my, my challenge to you last week was this series is going to go for five weeks. I would love everybody who calls Eastlake home uh, to read their Bible every day for five weeks. And I, if first service, uh, before first service started, somebody came up to me and they're like, so here's the deal. I didn't do it, but I am here today. So like, that's progress, right? And I'm like, yeah, that's great. We love it. Um, 
And uh, if you missed last week, you have a great excuse. I didn't even know we were doing this. So, you know, I don't even have to feel bad about it. Uh, but the invitation is uh, uh, at whatever pace you want. I'm not saying an hour a day. I'm not saying here's the only translation. I'm not even saying we're all reading the same passage together. I don't care. There's tons of different plans that you can go on and find. Find one that is adaptable to your season of life right now through uh, Bible.com or whatever. And and just, but just get in it. Just do it. Just find something, some pace to be able to make this thing happen. If you have questions about that, I'd be happy to discuss it. So today, I want to spend the rest of our time together talking about why history has an agenda, why history has an agenda. And I'd like to ask a question and uh, to kind of set up this social experiment for us. And the question is simply, is there a proper and right way to watch the Star Wars movies? Is there a proper and right way to watch them? The answer is, of course, yes, absolutely, and you do it with the release according to their release dates, right? Like only an animal would start with episode one and then go one, two, three. That's not how it works. In the mind of George Lucas as the storyteller, it was four, five, and six, and like with amazing foresight, set up well, what happened before and what comes after. Like great, great storytelling, right? That's how that sort of thing works. And if you started with one, it would change the story. It would change the experience altogether. You probably wouldn't make it to episode two if you only started with episode one. You know what I mean? Like that's how sometimes these things work. Um, and I, I get it. I watched um, a few years ago. Uh, I, I grew up in a home that we uh, like certain things could are watchable and certain things weren't. And the Godfather was not on the watchable list. Can you believe that? Uh, growing up in a pastor's kid's home, really weird. Um, and, uh, and so, but you know, everybody's seen The Godfather. And so and it has the same, in the same way that Star Wars has the uh, I am your father moment, sorry, spoiler. Uh, the Godfather has the horse scene, right? And, uh, and so everybody was like, oh, did you watch that? And, and I, I didn't have that context. And so it came out on HBO a, a few years ago. And I remember the, the way that it came out was, they did a chronological um, watching of The Godfather, meaning they took all the things that maybe it showed up in Godfather 2, but it was a, like a look back at what happened before flashbacks or whatever. And they just did from front to back, here's what it is. So it was just a mishmash of, well, that's from Godfather 3 and 2, then 1 and, and all over the place. And that was my first experience with it. And I, I do wonder what it would be like. Did I, did I mess it all up? Did I ruin the story by watching it in that way? Because absolutely a storyteller um, has a strategy in how something is presented. I don't think that they do it haphazardly and they're trying to communicate something within that. So how things are arranged make a certain point. I bring that up because we're gonna talk about briefly an arrangement strategy or an arrangement problem with the Old Testament that you may not even know about, but I do think it shapes our understanding and intentionally so uh, about why, uh, about the New Testament and about faith and about life and everything else. So it is a little bit of a history thing. We're going to put on our history hats for a little bit. I'm going to try to make it as interesting as possible. And if not, I, I promise it'll be over in just a few minutes. We'll wake you up and we'll get you out of here. You, you won't miss anything. So um, arrangement problems for this. So in the Bible that you own, uh, the, it's probably a Christian version of the Bible is my guess. That's the most mass produced one. It's, you know, it's probably what you have. Maybe you grew up Catholic. Yours has a little bit of, of additions at the end, the apocryphal books. These are books that didn't quite make the canon of, of scripture, but they're like, you know, considered to be informative and it, whatever. Um, 
for the most part, your Bible has 66 books. 39 of them are found in the Old Testament, 27 in the New. Uh, and it's not split halfway. It's more like three quarters and one quarter in terms of like geographical space within the text. Um, and the, uh, they're considered the Old Testament and the New Testament. An Old Testament, an Old Testament that God had. These are the holy scriptures of the Jewish people as it relates to God's promise uh, to Abraham uh, that he would make him into a mighty nation. And then this New Testament, which is uh, a New Testament brought by Jesus in this. So Jewish scriptures and Christian holy scriptures. Christian holy scriptures are unique in that um, the early Christian church felt like the Old Testament was important to use as an information or to inform things about the, the, the New Testament, that it creates problems that are answered through the appearance of Jesus in the new, right? Uh, and so when the Christian canonization process, which basically canonization means we have a bunch of stuff, which ones made the Bible, which ones make the cut? In about 4 AD, uh, 400 AD, uh, the church finally solidified these are the ones that make the cut. But it had been kind of in a practice for quite a while up to that point. Um, and they then said, we think these are holy scriptures as it's presented in this way. The order in which we have them that you're familiar with has pretty much stayed the same since 400 AD with a couple minor exceptions uh, along the way. But when they did that, um, they organized the Old Testament into basically four major categories. The categories that if you took a survey class, if you went to like a Christian school or something like that, they probably taught you this. The four sections of the Old Testament are law, uh, history, prophets, and, uh, or sorry, law, history, wisdom, and prophets. Um, that's how the layout goes in our order. So in the law, you've got the first five books or the Pentateuch, um, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. This would have been like the core things. This is the law that was handed down to uh, Moses on Mount Sinai for the people, big deal. If you were Jewish and you grew up, um, this is also the first part of your Bible. They would have had by the age of 12 or 13, uh, like this section of their Holy Scriptures memorized. Uh, that, that would be a key thing. Then for us, it goes into history books, which is like Joshua, Judges, a little bit of Ruth, First uh, Kings, Second Kings. Uh, then there's a crossover, like Chronicles tells the same story again. You're like, I just read this, but why is this in here? A lot of history about history for, for us has been the transition from life in Egypt to now the new promised land, the conquest that they went through, uh, the kings that they defeated, the, the, the way that they expanded their kingdom, and then the way that they split their land into the 12 tribes and who got what, where the boundaries are, and then their problems with all of these things. Then wisdom literature uh, shows up as like Song of Solomon, shows up as Proverbs, Psalms, Ecclesiastes, etc. And then uh, it ends in our format, it ends with prophets, major than minor prophets. Majors are simply meaning the mass of material is greater. There's like uh, 60 chapters or so in Isaiah. There's a ton in Jeremiah as well. Jeremiah is the biggest in terms of landmass book in the old, in the in the Bible, um, and uh, so so those would be like these five basically major prophets. And then minor prophets just mean not that they were minor; they didn't have as many things. As, uh, they weren't as important as Isaiah or Jeremiah. They just had less to say. So Amos, Hosea, Joel, all of them show up as minor prophets, typically five, six, seven chapters, maybe even less when it comes to um, Habakkuk and Haggai and all that kind of stuff. So uh, that's the kind of layout. In our Bibles, it ends with Malachi. We go Genesis through Malachi. Um, however, in the Jewish scriptures, if you were a Jew and you grew up and you're holy scriptures, which they would call the Tanakh for reasons that I'll explain in, in a minute, it ends a little bit differently. Their layout ends differently. It ends with Second Chronicles. It tells all the story, and then it ends 
uh, with this piece about recap. It's like Chronicles is like the Chronicles of what took place. Um, and it ends differently. It, the, the cliffhanger on which their story ends, ends differently than the one that we read. And cliffhangers are important. If you watch, you know, Netflix or, or any sort of show, and at the end, right before it goes to credits, and it's like next episode in 30 seconds or whatever, there's like something that happens. You're like, well, now I, I, can't, I can't go to sleep. I mean, I can't leave that unresolved. There is unresolved tension here that needs to be resolved if I just don't do anything for 30 seconds. The most brilliant invention of modern streaming history is, don't worry, we got you covered. You don't even have to press play. We'll just do it for you, right? Well, good, because I'm eating these chips, and these chips don't eat themselves. So uh, that's the change in the cliffhanger is, is a big deal. So if, if rearranging tells a story and history has an agenda, let's look at the ending of these two books. At so the end of Second Chronicles, the cliffhanger moment, the thing that's the unresolved tension is that they feel like God is going to eventually lead us back into our land and restore us into the land of our purpose that Israel will once again become ours, which, you know, back a few decades ago when Israel was once again a recognized country and you wonder, what's all this stuff about them fighting for their land? Why can't they all just get along? Why is there always constant like battles going on between who owns what and where it's at? And it's just dirt, guys, find something else to live. You have to understand this is a core thing for them. For them, their scripture, the unresolved tension of their holy scriptures is uh, that God will once again become great once we are fully established in our land. The, 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 the promise to Abraham was that uh, an abundance of nation in a land that belongs to us. So that's a big deal. So when Christians came along and reorganized and reframed the Old Testament, and re, they kept the same books, but they just rearranged the order of them, the ending in Malachi reads a little bit differently. Listen to this, Malachi chapter four, verse four through five. These are the last two verses of Malachi. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and law that I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. So emphasis on still Torah and law and all that kind of stuff. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. It's a, it's a prophecy of something that's going to come, and depending on what you do with it, your life will either be blessed or will be cursed. And what is to come? For them, they lived with this, yes, unresolved tension about being in the land, but how is the land going to become ours? It's going to become ours through the work of a Savior or a Messiah who's going to come and do this thing for us and solve the problems that we couldn't do. A Neo of the matrix, if you will. And we'll know that he's Neo or the one based on Elijah the prophet or somebody like Elijah coming to prepare the way of the Lord to say he's about to come. So for them, Elijah was the harbinger or the, the, the dove. It's like something's about to come. And they lived in the tension of, is this person Messiah? Is this so when Judas Maccabeus in Jewish history raises up and begins to fight things off and they celebrate Hanukkah because they had, you know, this oil thing that was about to fall out and they 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 took a stand and revolted against the intruders of their country. They're celebrating somebody who they go, is that Messiah? And then he's beaten down and, and killed and crucified or whatever. And so they're like, not him. And so it was constantly this, this is he, is he, is he, is he, is he? living with this tension uh, of Messiah. And and so 
it's absolutely a part of, the lore of Messiah is a part of their uh, history. But what the Christian things did was move that towards the very end so that the cliffhanger moment became, there's going to come a point where a Messiah is going to show up. What are you going to do about it? Are you going to be on the side of some who, someone who accepts that Messiah and is blessed as a result of it? And your hearts turn towards your parents, your parents turn towards your hearts, like all of these things, like tension is resolved, life is there, shalom takes place, or will you reject it and will you be on the cursed side of things? So when John the Baptist shows up in the gospels, in the, in the early stories of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and he's in the wilderness, and what is he dressed like? He's dressed like a weirdo with like fur everywhere and he's eating locusts and he's saying, prepare ye the way of the Lord. There's somebody who's coming whose shoes are unfit to tie. And immediately the New Testament writers who are categorizing this down are trying to paint and portray this person as an Elijah sort of figure. It's almost like it's been 400 years, but what we have on our hand is somebody who looks an awful lot like an Old Testament prophet coming to promote Jesus. And then Jesus appears on the scene. So Christians rearrange the Old Testament to point it towards the appearance of the Messiah through the person of Jesus. Why? Because Christianity is about Christ. Christianity is about what are we gonna do with the person who is Jesus? Do we believe that he is the divine incarnation of God himself in the universe? And therefore we should take what he said seriously about life and devote ourselves to the way of life in this. It was so important for them that they took liberties with Jewish history to communicate a point. That's just true in reality. That's what happened. And that, I think, has impacts on a little bit about having us begin to ask better questions about dealing with, what do we do with some of the Old Testament texts? And what, what do we do with what it says? And ugh, you know, this is kind of a hard read sometimes. Well, you have to understand they've been doing and shaping history and rearranging it to be able to tell a story that they want told. What are you going to do with Jesus? Which is still the point of the church even today. Yes, we have this. We have, you know, three quarters of the Old Testament, uh, three quarters of our Bible is in, in Old Testament things, pointing us towards a need for a Savior, a need for something. But the church gathers together on Sundays, not to necessarily rehash or live out, let's live out Old, Co Old Testament covenant, but trying to determine, distinguish, what are we going to do with Jesus? It's the same age old problem for us. Now, let me, let me also break down another piece of this that I think not only in the, in the rearranging of the order, but in what they categorize things as in terms of how they thought through the books uh, of the Old Testament. Um, the Jewish scriptures had, uh, where we broke it down into four sections. So in, in our Bible, it's, it's law, uh, then history, then wisdom, and then prophets. Uh, for them, not only did they rearrange that order, but they eliminated a category altogether. They had three categories. So if you, bought, if you buy a Jewish commentary on it, uh, like I have in my office that I've been working through, it comes in three volumes. One is called the Torah, one is called the Nevim, or the prophets, and then one is called the Ketuvim, or the writings. T-N-K, so that for them, our holy scriptures, Jewish scriptures, are the Tanakh. That's their shorthand way of saying the Tanakh, the three-section Old, Old Testament. And they wouldn't say Old Testament because for them it's not old. It's the Testament, right? So these are the holy scriptures. These are the, this is the Tanakh for us. Law, then prophets, and then all of the writings that come across this. Note, no specific category for history. They would include for them in the breakdown of the Navim or the prophets, what we see, what they call former prophets, latter prophets, and then the 12. Former prophets being Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, latter prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and then the 12, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nehemiah, Habakkuk, Zaphani, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. So those are the 
Get, did you get that all? Yes, if you're taking notes. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's Bible quiz, junior Bible quiz for me, showing up uh, and, and being a pastor's kid, you had to learn. Anyways, uh, so that is, uh, that, those are the categories. So for, in their minds, Joshua judges are not history. We see them as former prophets. This is prophetic literature, which is a little challenging for us because for us, a lot of times, when we hear the word prophetic in the realm of the church and scripture, we think of foretelling or forecasting, right? Revelation, a prophetic book, for, for, you know, supposedly about end times. Um, I don't think that that's necessarily true. We can talk about that in a Revelation series at some point. But um, we think about it as forward-looking, something that's going to happen someday. Whereas for them, prophetic books, prophecy was about the voice of God for a generation at that time, speaking in ways that's calling them towards something. Prophetic is somebody who comes and has a word of the Lord for the church or for a person to be like, I just feel like God's saying, and I've had people in my life. Um, I've, had, I've, I've been a part of churches where everybody thinks they're prophets or the people think that they're prophets and they're like saying stuff and you're like, I, I think you're just trying to gather attention. And I've also had people in my life who have also spoke something to me and be like, I just feel like God impressed me to tell you something. And uh, then I'm immediately defensive as you should be too. And being like, well, it's weird that he tells you and not, doesn't talk to me about me. That's super weird. And it's got a gossip. That's happening here, right? Um, but then when they say it, you go, you, you look at it and hopefully you part and parcel it out and be like, there is something powerful about that. When somebody says just the right thing to you at just the right time, and you say to yourself, either to them or in your mind, gosh, I needed to hear that. I needed that challenge in my life, or I needed that affirmation, or I needed that calling me out on some things that I'm, I'm not seeing. That's sort of, that's prophetic. And for them, that's the category that they see. These are prophetic things. This is the voice of God for this generation saying the right thing at the right time, trying to call us to something. So the problem that we have is that Joshua and Judges don't read prophetic in the way that we categorize prophetic. They read more like history. And when we think of history, we think of when things happened and how they happened. That's our, we bring our modern mindset of the word history and our definition of it into it. When we hear people talk about history and we hear, you know, we're savvy enough to know history is written by the, written by the winners always, right? You, you remember that. All your history books are written by the winners. Um, and it's maybe not a true accurate attempt, but we value accuracy. We want accuracy. We live with a, uh, with a uh, especially, gosh, in the last few years, we want our news sources to be as accurate as possible, right? And we're, we're miffed when they're not. And we're able to call it out and we, we look at things and we're like, all right, we've, we've figured out in the last couple of years that history has an agenda. And that also means modern history and present history as well. And you've based judgment of people based on where they get their news and all of that stuff, haven't you? You've walked in the home of people and like, oh, here's who we're dealing with. Okay, right. <laughs> Didn't know we were related to a weirdo, you know, all this kind of stuff. Guess I'm shopping somewhere else this week or something like that. Anyways, it, it's, been, it's been a tough, it's been a tough, uh, not tough. It's been an eye-opening sort of experience for us in the past few years about the reality of it. And, 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 you know, depending on where you're at, it's more true or less true or whatever. But um, apocalyptic 
language or apocalyptic sort of literature is a revealing, a grand revealing, like something has been revealed. And I will say that for the last couple of years, it's been an apocalyptic moment that history always has an agenda, even modern day history. That as people are telling you a story, they're telling you their version of the story. Even if they're like, we're a news organization, we're trying to be as faithful and to the true and unbiased as possible. It's true, but you're never truly fully unbiased, right? There's always something there, right? And I, I get it. I remember a couple of years ago, trying. I came across some, The Atlantic magazine, and there was a few articles that I was like really liking. And so I was like, maybe this is a good thing. I need to start reading more and, and getting, and I read the first cover and they have a motto that's imprinted on the inside cover of their thing. And it says, uh, uh, of no party or click. It's been their operating mantra for however long. And even the editor in chief at the time had this article that came out and, and here's what it says. Of no party or click was the founding motto of our magazine. In practice, this means that we should aspire to present each article on or argument on its own merits and not as expressions on some other agenda. Though, of course, we have all, all have our larger worldviews, blind spots, favorites. So yes, we have a personal bias, but in our collective work, as we try and present things and push them out into it, we try and be as unbiased as possible. And it sounds noble enough, and that's kind of what we want from our news organizations. We are like, that's... That's what I need. I get it that you and I might think politically different, but I just need the facts from you. Does it, you know, and then the question becomes, does it play out in real life? And I'm not here to like, you know, be pro or con on the Atlantic. It doesn't matter. But this is a, a perceived modern value for us. We value accuracy and information like this. Give me accurate information and then allow me the, uh, the, the freedom from a distance to make an interpretation on that data and then kind of move along with life. Now, we are also taking this modern mindset into how we read stuff, like what is classified for us as history, and that might not be exactly what they had in mind. We said last week, one of the things that is going to lead to better questions about the Bible is understanding that it was written by and for an audience very different from ours, a mindset, a worldview, an Eastern mindset that is different from our Western mindset. We talk about numbers differently. We talk about words differently. We use um, phrases and we have a different uh, interpretation in terms of dynamic and static reading when it comes to facts and accuracy in history. It's, it's different. And we said a more faithful approach to scripture is when we learn to play with both hands, an Eastern mindset and a Western mindset. We can't ever default out of this. We're gonna think through this. We're gonna think in this way. We're gonna continue to want history to be accurate information. But also, we need to respect the, the reality that they do think, the past is a different country, they do things differently there, that we can't always attach our way of, well, they're not doing it right. Do we, do we, I mean, we, we, we know when we go to foreign countries and we see them doing things differently, we have hopefully enough grace to allow them to continue to do their thing, respect their space. This is their spot. I'm simply a tourist here. You're really ignorant American when you go, you're not doing it right. And they're like, we've been doing this for hundreds of years. How about, how about like leave us alone? And you know, whatever. And there's all kinds of things. We, we, we said last week, we are literary tourists as we approach this. They're gonna do things a little differently. And for us to be like, they're not playing by the rules. They don't play by our rules. We have to learn to adapt and we will ask better questions once we learn that that is actually happening and that this is how it works. In an Eastern mindset, accuracy of information is important perhaps, but not nearly as important as the allowability of transformation of the person who reads it. That they are more interested in burying meaning and provoking discovery than they are about this is exactly what happened. Take that, log it away. Make sure you memorize that for a test later on. 
Which which village did we go to after we conquered Jericho? Wow, we went to Ai, and then we, you know, that was who was the king there? Og, right? That's not how they think. That's not how they operated. They are, they're trying to bury things in there to try and help a people group understand about who they were. For them, writing things down was costly, time-consuming. You had to have a certain level of education. We write things down all the time. We create shopping lists on any scrap of piece of paper that we have. We have a great educational system that taught us grammar at a very young age and writing and the cost of, uh, of paper and pens are, are minimal. You're gonna steal some on your way out this morning. I'm not even gonna be offended if you do. But back then to steal a pen and paper and ink and writing and have the ability to have, I mean, that was like upper echelon, top 1% sort of thing. So if you wrote something down, if something got written down back then, it had to be important. It had to be of utmost uh, importance for our community to kind of make it down on paper. So anything that we have from them was a bunch of them going, this is critical. This has to kind of go beyond our life and speak to us or speak to future generations about who we are. And not just not just in general, I really don't think that these people wrote this down saying, I wanna make sure the world knows who the Jews were. They wrote this down because they're thinking for our kids and our descendants and the people who come after us, I want them to understand who they are. This, they wrote this down for them, not for people outside of them to understand who they were. They didn't care about making it into history books, but we want our kids to know that the God of the universe made himself known through our people and called us to something and promised us a land. That's a big deal for them, for sure. This book was for them. <clears throat> the Hebrew historian has a bias unashamedly. They're trying to tell the story of God's people in a way that illuminates what God is doing in their midst and inviting them to become. And the emphasis for them is absolutely on the spiritual formation of their people. And I know we would say, but that's not how history works. Don't call it history if that's what you're doing because it's not history. I get it. We understand. Whether we prefer our world to theirs doesn't matter. We find ourselves to be literary tourists. So as we read some of this and wrestle with some of this and perhaps begin to read it with that mindset, I think what that leads us to is better questions about what is it exactly that I'm reading. Because honestly, if you've ever read, if you've ever been like, all right, this is the year. Reading through the Bible in a year, I'm doing this thing, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. You work through those things, you get there good. Then you get to Joshua and you're like, they're kicking butt, right? They're going to all these different places. They're, they're taking everybody. They're, they don't even have to go into a city. They just march around a few times and an angel appears and takes down the walls and they march in and they're on their own. You're like, this is great. You get to Judges. You ever read, read Judges lately? My wife just got finished with it. She goes, that is the hardest book of all of them to read because it presents the darkest picture of the people of Israel, what they do, what they're okay with, what they find ex acceptable. When somebody has somebody that does them wrong, they kill them and then, or they, they take body parts and they send them to different parts and they said, you did. I mean, it's just like, it's gruesome. Kylie gets done reading that. She's like, I don't like those people. I don't wanna be anything like them. So how do, you, how do you wrestle with something like this? How do you wrestle with a Joshua, which is like super positive and great and they can't do anything wrong with the judges where it's like super dark and like, what if, and perhaps, and this is just an option that's out there, maybe a better question to ask is this. 
as a group of people are trying to make sense of where they came from and what it's like to live in this land, that surely there was a resettling period in this. And are the conquest stories found in Joshua historically accurate? Is this what actually happened? Or perhaps sense a couple of things. One, we don't have a great archeological evidence of a million people making the transition from Egypt into this promised land, which you would think that somebody would say something about it from a secular historian, history standpoint. Or you know, there'd be structures that would say they built this in the, in the way, but it's just like it, it's this mass exodus. It feels like a big number of people. It'd be hard to miss. Like how would other kings not be like, wow, it was a sea of people making their way over. Or perhaps Judges is a parallel history of the same period that is much, much darker. There is a way to read this if you look at this as prophetic, if you see Joshua and Judges as sort of a former prophetic sort of literature of people saying, we have two options or two ways to do this. We can remain faithful to God, and it's amazing how our problems solve themselves. We march around a city and God does all the work for us. Or we attempt to be un, uh, we are unfaithful to God and attempt to do things and force things by ourselves, and we live in the way of the judges. We have this like two ways approach to us. What are we going to do with it? Which is far more transformative of a text, less historical, but also more like a matter of what are you going to do when two ways are approached to us? Which shows up in Proverbs as well. This two ways approach is super common. Um, even in, in Psalm chapter one, or in, in Psalms right, right away too, right? Blessed is the man who, uh, who's, who focuses on the law of the Lord, who, who focuses on a day and night, who uh, who's, doesn't stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers, but his delight is on the law of the Lord. Uh, he's like a tree planted by streams of water whose leaf doesn't wither in season, or not so the wicked, they're like the chaff that the wind blows away. Which one are you gonna be? Um, blessed is the man uh, who is smart with his money and operates with wisdom. He will have a, a house that's gonna speak great things, right? And, and it's gonna communicate all kinds of truth. But a fool and his money are soon quickly departed from one another. Uh, the, 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 the lives of sons is a testament to the, the goodness and the blessedness of a father. But we're, it's a poor spot to be in a spot where your kids you know, are, are doing something different and, and, and you get phone calls at 4 a.m. to bail them out of jail. And it's like, it's really hard. It's like this two weeks, which, which one are you gonna do? Over and over and over again in scripture, what we see are this or this, faithfulness or not faithfulness, goodness or badness or evil. Which life thing are you gonna choose? That is a call towards something. That's a, that leads to like these better questions, which then also relate to us. We're faced with questions every day. Am I gonna be ethical and honest in, in the work that I do? Or am I gonna like cut corners because it kind of makes more sense in the short term? Am I gonna be faithful to my family and my wife and my husband? Or am I gonna choose this, you know, this is what's best for me in this season, right? Like all of that becomes far more relevant than did this actually happen? And if so, what does it mean to me? And which, which nation? I mean, that... Guys, this, this way leads to a much better real, realization of asking us better, better questions about the Bible because if our foundations are all wrong and we're messed up with this thing, we're gonna ask bad questions about the Bible. When we ask bad questions, we get bad answers. And then we throw the authority of the Bible on there and we're like, now we're all, now we're all messed up. Now we're living lives, we're like, I don't know, this feels irrelevant and like maybe I shouldn't really live my life in this way. Well, yeah, because we're asking the wrong questions there's perhaps a better way to do it. Perhaps history was leveraged to make a point. Listen, 
we're comfortable with this when it comes to like documentaries and shows that are based on real life stories about people. Things that are like, here's the story of Ray Kroc and how he founded McDonald's. Here's the story of Walt Disney and the building of the Disney world and all of these things. These documentaries portray this person as this good, really smart, did all the things at the right time. When we know if you then buy a book that actually has like biographical information that has like 600 pages that they got to fill, then you realize that life is complex, that things didn't always work out great, that so-and-so wasn't actually a great individual, but that doesn't make for good cinema in only 90 minutes. And so a storyteller decides which parts to keep, which parts to play out. History has an agenda in this. We're comfortable with that when it comes to documentaries. I was listening to uh, the Smartless podcast recently. They had the director on uh, for Air, uh, which was uh, Ben Affleck, right? And, and so he, they're asking him about this movie. And it's the, uh, it's, it's an, it highlights the story of how the Nike executive signed Jordan to be able to do Air Jordan shoes. And I haven't seen it yet, so I don't know how it all works, but I'm pretty sure he does sign in the end and, and it goes well for them. I think they make a lot of money. Um, <laughs> But I remember them asking like these questions and doing this in, in the interview process. Like, is this how it went down? Like, did this actually happen? In the, sh- in the movie, they show up here and then there's drama and then this. Is that manufactured drama or is that real? And Ben's classic answer is, ah, did it happen this way? I mean, ish. Yeah, you know, close enough. It was like, we fudged a few things here. We did a few things here. And we don't sit there going, well, then I'm not watching this thing. The goal is entertainment on it. The goal is to be inspired to this. The goal is for you to go watch the movie and then start buying as many Air Jordans and flipping them as possible, as fast as possible on eBay, right? So that's, that's the goal of this thing. Like we're comfortable in that way. Listen, we're not offended when certain details and story and pieces of the story are slightly rearranged or embellished to make the cinematic experience more effective. We're actually thankful for it. The ancient world of the Bible used historical events as a medium to communicate transformative truth. And if we look at this and we begin to see it not necessarily as much about a story of what has been, but about who people writing about wrestling with the idea of God, writing about who they were becoming, it will change things for us. I'm gonna close and leave you with this last quote, a thought from a guy named Pete Enns who wrote a book called uh, The Bible Tells Me So, one of my favorite books on this stuff. If you want to, looking for extra reads beyond this, that all this is super interesting to you and you can go this route, then, then perhaps it's a good thing. Writing about the past was never simply about understanding the past for its own sake, but about shaping, molding, and creating the past to speak to the present. It happens all the time. It happens here too. We should expect it. If we're doing this in our own human thing, why, why would it not uh, show up in a book about human people writing about their human experience wrestling with the idea of God. And I think if we understand it that way, it'll help us ask better questions for it. And that is the goal. What are we, how is this transforming me, shaping me, making me a better follower of Christ and better at understanding how life works and what I need to do to be good at it? If the Bible has ever been a hurdle for you, and one of the reasons I don't like church is because their obsession with this book that I'm just not that into, then maybe this is a good little start and an inspiration for why I think you should read your Bible this week and every week for the next four weeks as we continue this conversation. Let's pray. Father, our prayer is that you would help to inspire in us a hunger for this, a passion for this, and eyes open enough to allow it to speak to us, to read us into the story as well, that you are You've been in the business of shaping humanity and bringing us back towards a relationship with you. We get to read about it here. We get to experience it in real life. 
Give us the wisdom to know what to do with that. Curse to do something about it in your name. Amen. Thanks again for listening. If you've got more questions about the church or community group options for connecting with East Lakers outside of Sunday mornings, I'd encourage you to check out our website, eastlaketricities.com, or better yet, download our app by searching East Lake Tri-Cities in your favorite app store.